Um, if you haven't been here, we're working our way through the book of Acts. Um, last week, uh, Travis preached the first part of Acts chapter 9. Um, we'll continue in Acts chapter 9 this morning, so if you want to be turning there. Um, we're going to start in verse 11, which is actually part of what Travis preached last week, um, but we need to, need to backtrack a little bit to make sense of the passage that um, we'll be exploring this morning. So be turning to Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Um, in terms of context, uh, this is Paul's encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Um, so we're, we're kind of at the, the, the turning point of church history in the New Testament, right? So we have the ministry of the Gospels, we have the early church, we have Paul on the road to Damascus, which lays the groundwork for the epistles and the rest of the New Testament. Um, so th- this is a marquee event in the New Testament, uh, and it's of great importance to, to not only church history, but to us today as believers as we seek to pursue Christ. So we'll start in verse 11. We're going to read down through verse 31. Um, the beginning of the passage, the Lord's speaking to Ananias, exhorting him to go find Saul um, and to minister to him. The passage says this, it says, Get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, him being Ananias, to the house of Judas and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul now begins his, his ministry, starting in Damascus and then going to Jerusalem. Writer of Acts says this, he says, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on his name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priest? But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that one, that this one is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, But their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, so so Saul's been persecuted in Damascus, the, the brothers and sisters there help him escape, he goes to Jerusalem. When he arrives there, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had been seen, uh, explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road 
and that he had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then this kind of beautiful summation of the, this early ministry of Paul. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. Join me in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for, for your glorious work, for the way that you saw fit to, to send your Son to start a church, to redeem Saul in a miraculous way, to then use the ministry of, of Paul to plant churches throughout the Mediterranean so that we today can look back and know the, the treasures that are hidden in you. So Father, we ask as we, as we mine the, the glories of Scripture this morning, that you would be with us, that you would give us hearts that are available, hearts that are ready to hear the glory of your work. Father, we ask that you would take the, the cares and the concerns of this world and that you would push them to the side, that you would allow us to, to focus on that which is true and that which is reality. Father, I ask humbly for myself, that, that as, as we, we explore these truths together, that you would make yourself known in, in glorious ways, uh, that, that I just be a tool to make yourself known to these people and to the ends of the earth. Father, we ask for your grace, we ask for your glory amongst us. In your precious holy name we pray, amen. All right, so... Um, for those of you who have been here in the past when I preached, um, be it simple-minded or not, I always try to answer two questions. One, what's the story? What's, what's the plain meaning of the scripture in front of us? So that's number one. That's where we'll start. The number two is, is what does it mean for us? What, what, what impact, what meaning could this have for New Testament believers in 2022 sitting in Oxford, Georgia, some... 2,000 years departed from these goings-on in, in the Mediterranean. What possible impact could this have on us? Um, so let's start with the first thing. So what, what's happening here? What's the story? Um, pretty, pretty straightforward in a lot of ways, right? Um, it starts with Ananias' interaction with Paul. Um, the Lord comes to Ananias and says, you must go to Paul, you must baptize him, you must pray for him, you must encourage him. Ananias pushes back and says, whoa, 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 I don't know if you've heard, but this Saul guy's a little crazy. <laughs> uh, he likes killing people like me, as it turns out. Um, and the Lord reassures Ananias uh, in words that should echo in our ears. It's verses 15 and 16. <laughs> the Lord says, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. And we know from the rest of the epistles and the rest of the New Testament that is absolutely true. Um, and then verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Also very true, and we'll recount all of the ways in which that turns out to be true in Paul's life. Um, but that's a hard reality, right? 
I mean, the Lord is promising to, to Saul through Ananias that you will go and you'll do these things. You will take my name forward to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and it will be hard. You will endure all sorts of sufferings and trials and persecutions. So Ananias blesses, blesses Paul, baptizes Paul. Paul regains his sight. He takes in nourishment. Um, and he begins his ministry in Damascus, where he is there. Um, there's some debate amongst biblical scholars about how long um, Paul was in Damascus. Um, say some say as few as some say it's as few as a couple of months. Some say it's as much as seven years. Um, there's debate on this topic, but what we do know is what happens to Saul in Damascus lays the foundation for his ministry. So the, the believers that he interacted with there, the ministry that he did there, provided him the, the foundation and the groundwork for the rest of the New Testament. Um, and there's a lot that you can mine there. Um, there. There's a lot of very interesting ties from the book of Romans back to what happened in Damascus. Um, and if we had eight hours to explore all those things, we would. Um, but if you wanted to go a little deeper, I encourage you to go explore those things. But uh, what we do know for sure is that, that Paul, while he's in Damascus, the Lord is building him up, the Lord is encouraging him, the Lord is showing him the glory of who God is, um, and that lays the foundation for the rest of his ministry. So Saul, Saul's in Damascus, um, he's going to the synagogues, and he's essentially proclaiming the supremacy of Christ. Um, so the, the juxtaposition is strong, right? So here's the man who was persecuting those of the way, those who were proclaiming the supremacy of Christ. And all of a sudden, he is the one that is proclaiming the supremacy of Christ. Um, this, of course, makes the Jews angry. Um, they seek to kill him. Um, yet again, remember back to God's promise in verse 16 that you will suffer. Uh, it begins almost immediately. Um, and so Paul has to flee Damascus. He has to leave um, and there are some very cunning believers in Damascus who help lower him via a basket through a hole in the wall down so that he can escape to Jerusalem. I was told last night there's apparently some kid's cartoon involving donuts and Paul coming down through a wall. I don't know, but apparently this was a thing when I was a kid that I just missed. So if you want a visual representation of this event, I'm sure you can do a little YouTube Googling and find yourself a, a somewhat entertaining video of a donut being lowered through a wall. Um, Saul then goes to, goes to Jerusalem. So he goes back to where this all started, right? So he leaves Jerusalem, a man impassioned to kill believers um, for the sake of established Jewish tradition. Um, so he's going to Damascus. The encounter on the road to Damascus occurs. He goes to Damascus. He's, he's blessed and baptized by Ananias. The foundation for his ministry begins he begins preaching in Damascus, then he has to flee back to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he has two problems, uh, and essentially it's nobody likes him. Um, the, the believers in Jerusalem don't believe him for obvious reasons. It's like, wait a second, this was the guy who was stoning Stephen some number of years ago, and now he's back here saying he's one of us. This is kind of hard to believe. Uh, and obviously the Jews no longer like him because he's in the synagogue proclaiming the supremacy of Christ and direct opposition to their beliefs. So, so Paul, Paul is a man with no home in Jerusalem. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants him there. Um, and Barnabas intervenes uh, and goes before the believers in Jerusalem. 
It essentially gives credence to Paul's story. He's saying, no, 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 no. You know, Saul was on the road. He had this encounter with the Lord. He's been ministering in Damascus. What you're seeing here is real. This is genuine. This is a guy that you can trust. So he finally gets on the good side of the believers in, uh, in Jerusalem. And wouldn't you know it, the Jews get mad at him and seek to kill him again. Um, and so those believers help Paul flee Jerusalem to go to Tarsus. He leaves, and then we, the summation of the passage is verse 31, which says, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. So, very simple story. Paul, road to Damascus, meets the Lord. Ananias comes to him, blesses him, baptizes him. He begins ministry in Damascus. Jews in Damascus want to kill him. The believers in Damascus help him escape to Jerusalem. Goes to Jerusalem where nobody likes him. Uh, Barnabas helps him gain the respect and the trust of the believers in Jerusalem. He continues to minister there. Jews yet again don't like him, seek to kill him. The believers help him flee Jerusalem to Tarsus. Um, and then there's the, the kind of beautiful benediction in verse 31 about the church having peace, being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and then the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. And from here, it goes to talk about, go on, the passage goes on to talk about the ministry of Peter, and so on and so forth. So, pretty simple. Um, nothing hard to understand. No parable here. This is a very straightforward reciting of facts. So, what does it mean for us? I think for us to kind of unpack what this means, we, we've got to start at the end. So, so verse 31 is kind of the culmination of this period of Paul's life and in the life of the church. And it says, throughout, so the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. So, a couple of things I want us to unpack in verse 31, and then we'll work our way back up to the top of the, pa- to the, top of the passage. The first thing I want us to see here is the, the phrase, had peace. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. This is not referring to an external peace. The Jews did not all of a sudden wake up one day and decide they were okay with the followers of the way, with those proclaiming the, the, the supremacy of Christ, that did not happen. That's not, not what the writer is saying here. Uh, this is not an external piece. This is an internal piece. So despite all of the chaos around them, despite the killing of, the, the wanting to kill of Paul, the, the persecution of numerous believers, the church had peace. Um, which begs a question for us, what's going on here? So the world around them is chaotic. They're, they're, they're literally lowering Paul through a basket and a hole in the wall to help him escape the city. So these are not peaceful times. Um, these are turbulent times. These are hard times, but the church had peace. So the question for us is why? And we'll get there. Verse 31 goes on to say, they were being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. This, this in a lot of ways, is a... Is a, is a picture of Paul's life on a grander scale. So think about Paul's life. Broken, seeking to persecute believers in Jerusalem, has this encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus, is blessed, is baptized, 
grows in his faith in Damascus, begins ministry. That's the same thing the church is going through in this passage. So it's being, it's being persecuted, it's suffering, but it's being built up. It's walking in its fear of the Lord, and it's growing in its encouragement of the Holy Spirit. So what we see in Paul's life in, in, a, in a microcosm, we see in the, the church globally um, here in Acts 9. And then lastly, it said it increased in numbers. So you have this peace, despite crazy circumstances. You have this dedication to growing in the fear of the Lord, to, to receiving the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and that results in the church growing in number. So the question for us, I mean, we read verse 31, and I think for us as believers and for us as a church, this is the life we want to live, right? Like if someone could say of us that we had peace despite our circumstances, that we were being built up, that we were walking in the fear of the Lord, that we were growing in, growing in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and that we were increasing in number, we would say, that's a good day. Like, we'll take that. Like, that, that is... That is the, the fulfillment of the Christian life in so many ways. So the question for us is, is, what does this passage have to tell us about how do we get there? How does, this, how does this come to be a reality? How does peace, despite circumstances, how does growing in our knowledge of the fear of the Lord, how does all of that happen? And I think, I think Paul and Saul's walk here um, has, has some great pieces of truth for us that we have to understand if we want to see this reality come, come into play. So three, three components to Paul's story that I think are pertinent for us today as we seek to see verse 31 become a reality in our lives. The first goes all the way back up to verse 16. Um, Paul is promised in no uncertain terms suffering. I mean, the, the Lord plainly tells Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. <laughs> Those are not comforting words. This, this is the creator of the universe telling Saul, it's going to be bad, and I'm going to ensure that it's going to be bad. It's going to be uncomfortable. You will have nowhere to lay your head. You're going to show up in Jerusalem, and nobody's going to like you. The believers aren't going to like you. The home team isn't going to like you. The Jews aren't going to like you. You will be a man with no home. The, the, the amazing thing is, Paul, Paul then echoes these words back to us. If you think to, think to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, he says to the church there, it's been counted on your behalf to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. So this is a very uncomfortable truth for believers, that the road for believers, the road for Christians is marked with suffering. But despite all of that, we see in verse 31, the church had peace. So what's happening here? What's going on here? I think there's a couple of, of other segments of Paul's story that can be helpful to us as we try to answer that question of how, how can we be promised suffering? How can our, our promise as believers be pain and toil and brokenness, but we still have peace and joy in the midst of that? Two passages. 
both from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, Paul really fleshes out this promise. So God makes the promise in Acts 9, 16. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul essentially acknowledges it comes, it comes true. So this is what Paul says. These are some of the trials and tribulations that he has encountered in his ministry. So five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. Three times I was beaten by rods, beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. So God has been true to his word. He promised, he promised Saul that you will see the suffering that you will, will partake for the sake of my name. And Paul recounts it in 2 Corinthians 11, names all these ways he has suffered. But the other side of the story is in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul looks back on all that suffering, and this is what he has to say. He says, therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul, Paul recounts all of these, these sufferings, all of this pain that has befallen him. And he says, all of those afflictions are light. They are momentary as compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So it's easy enough to read that and say, yeah, yeah, that should be true. Like we know as believers that 2 Corinthians 4 should be the reality that we live in. But the challenge is I don't know for myself and for a lot of us that we truly live that reality. How many of us can really look at the struggles of our life, and say these are my or these are momentary light afflictions when compared with the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So as I was studying this passage, as I was asking myself these questions, I wanted to find out for myself like what 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 were the components that made this true for Paul. What, what, what allowed him to look back on, on God saying, oh, you will suffer. This is going to be very, very hard. But then him come to 2 Corinthians 4 and to say it's all light, it is all momentary when compared with the glory that is to come. And there, there's, there's two, two components of Paul's story that, that I believe serve as an encouragement for us as we look to make this the reality in our lives. Because we, we know suffering is coming. It's either here, we just left it, or it's on its way. Like, that is, that is life. We live in a fallen world that is affected by sin. It is broken, and suffering is our call. That, that is reality. There's no escaping that, and for us to try to escape that is foolhardy. Like, there's no promise in Scripture that says suffering is not our call. Suffering is absolutely our call. So that's reality. So how do we get from there to joy, to peace, 
to light momentary afflictions. So two components of Paul's story uh, that, that I think should be an encouragement for us as we, as we seek to make that transition from not getting bogged down in the pain of suffering, but finding the joy and peace that comes in Christ. The, the first thing is that, that, that Saul, that Paul was chosen, just as we are chosen. So if you go back up to verse 15, Ananias objects. The Lord tells him to go to Saul. He objects, saying, I've heard about this guy. He's a little crazy. And the Lord says, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. So God chose Saul for suffering. God also chose Saul as an instrument for his glory. The same is true for us. If you go to 2 Peter Second Peter 2, Peter says this to the, the believers that are scattered. He says, So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobeyed the message. They were destined for this. And then Peter says this to the dispersed church. He says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So we, we are chosen. We are called not only to suffer, but also to be the tools for the spread of the glory of God to all peoples. So that's, that's step one. Because we've got to realize we're, we're chosen, we are called, we are called both to suffer as well as to be instruments for the glory of God in this world. We, uh, we, read, we read often, we have a, it's a little, I don't know, it's like the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in 30 sentences, I think is the best way to put it. Um, we read it to Penelope multiple times a week. Um, and there's always, there's two pages, right? I mean, this is like a little kid's book, like it's got a picture and a sentence, right? So it's like, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, like, way dumbed down. Um, but there's always two pages that get me. And one of them is, is after, after Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy are in Narnia. Edmund has been taken away by the witch. Uh, the, the other three have gone to meet Aslan. Aslan. Aslan tells them that they've been chosen as kings and queens to rule over Narnia, which sounds like something cool in a kid's book, right? But the reality is, that's Scripture. That's Luke 22, that's Luke 12, that's Matthew 19, where God tells us that we're chosen to sit on thrones, reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel. And every time I read it, it sends chills down my spine that, that God has chosen, has chosen us, yes, to suffer, but also to bring his glory to the nations, that we may sit on thrones judging the, tw- the 12 tribes of Israel. So with that little nugget in the kid's book, it is the absolute truth of the reality that we live in. So if we want to know how Paul has this promise that you're going to suffer, but still finds peace and joy and sees all of his struggle as a light momentary affliction, it's because he knows what's coming. He knows he's been chosen He's a chosen instrument. 
He's bringing you about the glory of God. He's fulfilling his purpose as a human being. But he knows the promise of God that one day he'll sit at the right hand of God the Father and that he will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not all. Second component of of how, how Paul makes this transition from not getting bogged down in the pain of suffering to finding peace and joy in light momentary affliction. We see it in two places. The the first place is expressed, the phrase isn't used, but the the idea is certainly there. You know, as, as, as Paul's on the road to Damascus, the Lord intervenes in his life, and Paul falls on his face before the Lord, scales on his eyes, and proclaims the glory of God. Paul, Paul, has, Paul has got a first row seat to what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. Go down to verse 31. What does it say about the church? What are they walking in? How, how, how is this peace despite circumstances happening? It's because they're walking in the fear of the Lord. So two components, out of the, the, the pain of suffering to the, to the joy, to the, the peace. First is it our, our chosenness. The second one is that we live each day in the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is, is likely one of the most misunderstood phrases in all of Scripture, and that is to our detriment as a modern-day church. Um, the, as you read the Old Testament, when you come across passages, whether it's, it's Moses at the burning bush, references to the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, it's this word, yaira. It's Y-I-R-A-H in English. And this is by no means a a hit job on Bible translators. They have a hard job, um, but they probably have gotten this one wrong as language has evolved over the last 200 years. Um, the, the, this word in, in modern English more closely translates as wonder, amazement, mystery, astonishment, gratitude, admiration, and even worship. It's an overwhelming sense of the glory, worth, and beauty of God. So, so when Paul encounters the glory of God on the road to Damascus, it, it ignites a fire with him, within him for the fear of the Lord. But that's not a trembling. Yeah, yes, Paul has holy reverence for the Lord, but what Paul is really doing is he's standing in wonder and amazement at who God is, at the glory of God's goodness, at the might of his power. And that's what motivates Paul through all of those sufferings. He says it doesn't matter what comes. It's all light and momentary compared to this glory that I have seen, to this glory that I have encountered. Abraham Heschel, he's a, he's a modern-day Jewish rabbi. Um, as it turns out, Jewish rabbis know a little bit more about Hebrew than we do. Um, he wrote a book called God's Search for Man, um, and he's talking about this very idea, this idea of the fear of the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, Yaira is an intuition for the dignity of all things, a realization that things not only are what they are, but also stand however remotely for something supreme. So suffering just isn't suffering. 
It stands for something eternal. Our day-to-day interactions with one another just aren't simply interactions. They stand for something eternal. It enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense the ultimate and the common and in the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. What we cannot comprehend by analysis, we become aware of in awe. That last sentence could not ring more true in the life of Saul. What we cannot comprehend by analysis, we become aware of in awe. So our our minds, our intellectual ability will bring us to the feet of the Lord, will bring us to the feet of God Almighty. But it's not until we understand his glory that all of it becomes real. I mean, Saul had the most profound religious education that anyone could ever imagine. That the man knew the Torah frontwards, backwards, in every way possible. He had a deep understanding of, of, of Hebrew. He had a deep understanding of the language. He had a deep understanding of the scriptures. But it wasn't until he encountered the glory of God on the road to Damascus that he was filled with the fear of the Lord, that he understood the awe that he should have before King Jesus. Make it a little more accessible for for us, 21st century non-Jewish believers. Paul David Tripp, who is not a Jewish rabbi, um, he has this to say about the fear of the Lord. He says, the fear of the Lord is such a reverential awe of God that grips your heart, that you're willing to listen to his wisdom. You're willing to submit to his commands. You're willing to surrender your will to his will. And you're willing to rest in the awesome promises of his grace. The fear of the Lord makes you run toward him, not away from him, and causes you to live in a way you would not live apart from him. It's the fear of the Lord that caused David to walk into the valley of Elah and to challenge the great warrior Goliath. It's the fear of the Lord that made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unafraid of the threats of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the fear of the Lord that has propelled all of his saints to live as soldiers of light in a darkened world. So what is it? What, what, what is it that makes all the suffering worth it? What makes the promise in verse 16 where God tells Saul that you will suffer? All of those things we saw in 2 Corinthians, what makes it worth it? What makes it, what makes it lead to peace and to joy? It's a proper understanding of who God is. And an understanding not, not, a, not just of our mind, but of, of seeing and understanding who we are before the glory of God. That we are nothing apart from the glorious majesty of King Jesus. If we want to go from not being trapped in the pain of suffering to experiencing the peace and the joy of being able to say this is all light and momentary affliction, we have to rest day in and day out in the fear of the Lord. We must go back to what Abraham Heschel says. It's it's an awe, it's wonder, it's amazement, it's mystery, it's astonishment, it's gratitude, it's admiration, it's worship. If we don't get that right, nothing else matters. If Paul, if Paul hadn't, hadn't encountered the glory of God on the road to Damascus, nothing else matters. If we want any spiritual good, if 
we want this church to accomplish anything, if we want to see our communities changed, if we want to see families healed, it all starts here. And it starts in our own hearts. This is not a point the finger at the community around us and say, well, clearly they don't, they don't, they don't fear the Lord. Come on. This is a call for us. This is a battle we have to fight each and every day. We have to find a way to stand in awe of King Jesus day in, day out. Day in, day out. Because the suffering's coming. It's not going to stop. It's promised to us. It's our lot. It's what we're called to. But where we can have a great, a great testament to the glory of God is when the suffering comes and we find peace and joy and contentment. And that's only available through a proper understanding of who God is, through the fear of the Lord. So my, my plea for us this morning is just that. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy on anything that doesn't promote the fear of the Lord in your life. If, it, if whatever it is does not promote your awe of God, does not promote your wonder of God, doesn't promote you mining the mysteries of who God is, don't waste your time doing it. It's not worth it. I think for us as a church, where we're at in our, in our church life, you know, we read verse 31, and especially that, that last phrase, it grew in number, and we think, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And yes, it would be. But I can tell you this, even if a church grows in number, but we don't have a, a, a proper fear of the Lord, I don't know what we're giving people, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want this church to grow, if we want to see this community healed, if we want to see broken families brought together, if we want to see shattered relationships reconciled, it starts with each one of us pursuing the fear of the Lord, standing in awe of who God is, finding ways to, to wonder at the mysteries of God. This I can say with, with all confidence, that, that if, we, if we do those things, if we pursue the fear of the Lord, it, whatever the details are of how things work out for the church at Haynes Creek or how things work out for our individual lives, God will A, receive glory, and B, it will be for our good and our enjoyment. Do we get to write the story? No, but that's never been the intent from the beginning. The intent from the beginning is to be lost in the glory of God, to, to encounter the fear of God, and to be able to echo, echo the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely uncomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So as we do every week, um, as, we, as we conclude our worship through the proclamation of the word. We're, we're going we're gonna to commune with God through the Lord's, through the Lord's Supper. My, my plea for you as you do so is that you beg the Lord 
beg the Lord for a glimpse of his glory. That you ask that you could live each day in the fear of the Lord, in that awe, in that reverence, in that wonder of who God is. Ask that you ask for that for yourself, for this church, for your community, for people that you know who do not care about the glory or the wonder of God. So Johnny, Johnny's going to come. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to take the elements. But I ask you as believers to, to beg the Lord for that reality. Beg the Lord to show himself to you. And as we take these elements as believers, as we take, take the bread and take the cup, may it be a living reality uh, of an internal reality of us worshiping the glory of God. And then may that spur us on to live in fear of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for your work in the life of Saul, the life of Paul. Thank you that you saw fit to, to not only redeem us, but to, to give us the, the gift of life more abundant through seeing the glory of who you are. And God, we, we, we hurt and we long for words to find a way to express that. Father, we, we, we truly do not know what we ask when we ask this. But we ask that this fear of the Lord that, that gripped Moses at the burning bush, that gripped Isaiah on the Mount of Transfiguration, that gripped Saul on the road to Damascus, that gripped the church in Acts 9, we ask that that fear of the Lord grip us. Father, we ask that, that we do not become discouraged in the face of suffering. Father, we know that suffering is our call. We know that suffering will come. Father, we ask that we, we be so deeply rooted and walking so closely to you in our fear of you that our response is simply peace and joy and an acknowledgement that it is nothing, that all that suffering, all that pain is nothing compared to the eternal weight of life with you. So Father, we, we ask as we come to take these elements that we would do so with a heart of worship, that we would understand who you are, that you would show us who we are in relation to you, Father, that you would show us what we don't even know, what we don't even know to ask, what we struggle to put into words. Father, we pray that you would make that known to us as we worship you through song, as we worship you through meditation, through reflection, through the taking of these elements. Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness to us. In your precious holy name we pray, amen.